It was said that after the college had been engaged in sterile debate for two days, on the morning of the third day, a bevy of waitresses arrived outside the locked doors with refreshments. On hearing the knock at the door, the archbishop shouted, Who's there? A disillusioned member suggested that it might be the Holy Spirit trying to get in. The election was three days away. Elena, my wife, who was a GP and had a surgery in Brinvelin, warned me that I was in danger of a deep depression if our archdeacon was elected bishop. Leaving the Holy Spirit out of it, she said at breakfast that morning, I can't believe that forty-seven reasonably intelligent individuals would elect such a humorless and non-charismatic person into a position which demands the best which the church in Wales can offer. So lift up your heart, Frederick. I feel sure that your fears are groundless. Don't forget that Horace Philpotts is one of our representatives, and you know what a crawler he is, I replied. Since the clergy chose me as their rural dean instead of himself, the only way to a greater glory for him is to become a canon. Who alone can bestow such an honour but his lordship? I am certain that there are others in the college from this diocese who will use their avowed support to gain advantage from his election. You seem to forget that there are thirty-five other members from all over Wales, including the bishops, who are responsible for the appointment of the diocesan, said my wife very firmly. So for heaven's sake, my love, forget what you think is your impending doom, and concentrate on the arrangements for the consecration of your lovely new church. Duly admonished, I went into the study and rang Colin Westwood, who was the clerk of works for Emmanuel Evans and Company, the building firm who had won the contract for the construction of the new St. David's. Colin was a lay reader in a neighbouring parish, and the ideal person to be superintending the creation of a place of worship. At the moment there was a night watchman on guard. Once he was removed, it was essential that he was replaced by an iron barrier. The Brinvelin estate was not particularly law-abiding. I waited for a few minutes for an answer, and was about to replace the phone when a breathy Colin announced his presence. Any sign of our railings, I inquired. Funny you should say that, he said. They've arrived a few minutes ago. That's where I was when you rang. With a bit of luck, they will be in position by the end of the day. That's another load off my mind, Stanley. And off mine, too, Ollie, I replied. I'll be up at the end of the afternoon to see if it is in place. I sometimes think it should be electrified. Vicar, he exclaimed, what a remark from a man of God. Only playing, Colin, I said. In any case, my wife would forbid it lest I should be the first victim, knowing her poor opinion of me as a practical person. See you later. No sooner had I put the phone down than there was a ring on the front doorbell. Mrs. Cooper, our housekeeper, had taken our two children, David and Elspeth, to school. To my surprise, I find my curate, Hugh Thomas, on the doorstep. I had the pleasure of his company 
only an hour or so previously at Matins, when we had discussed the exciting nearness of the new religious and social centre on Brinvelling, something we had worked hard to establish over the past four years. He looked concerned. What has happened to you? I asked anxiously. Don't worry, Vicar, he replied. It's not any kind of trouble. I'd better come in and explain. I led him into the study and ushered him into the vacant armchair. I've had a letter this morning from the Bishop of Barset, who was vice-principal when I was at the Theological College. A college friend of mine, who has a living in that diocese, has told him that I am still without a living after seven years in orders. He has offered me the benefice of Ringford, a small country town of six thousand inhabitants and two churches.